When you think uh, you know, of a Christian, what are you thinking at that point? Uh, that is, what's the, what's the thing that marks a Christian out from someone else? What's their primary identity? Uh, if you looked, I guess, at the news at the moment, and you tried to answer that question there, you might turn to Syria, for example, where thousands upon thousands of Christians are being slaughtered every week, men, women, and children. Uh, in, in Egypt right now, there is, on average, 50 churches being burnt to the ground. Uh, I guess if you're trying to answer that question, what is a Christian, from just the news at, at the moment, you would probably say, well, the Christians, they're the ones who are getting persecuted. That's, that's your answer there. Uh, if you look to history, though, let's look there for a moment, if you can. Uh, you'd probably see that Christians have always been at the forefront of uh, social reform. Uh, they've, uh, they've always been at the forefront of international aid, always have been, and they certainly are today, by a massive majority. Now, what about all those wars you're probably saying? You know, you look a little bit further back, maybe eight centuries, and you go, ah, well, you Christians, you did lots of stuff. Yeah, in the name of God, some pretty awful things have happened, I have to admit. And I'm not going to try and defend those people right now. But did you know... Which religion or uh, who has caused, if you like, the most deaths over the, the previous century that's just gone by now? You know, what religion do you think has caused the most deaths uh, in the last hundred years? Because actually Christianity comes out the best in, that, in those statistics. The religion that comes out worst is atheism. By a mile. I mean, Stalin alone, there was uh, 20 million of his own people in the name of no God. Just humanistic atheism, naturalism, you might say. Oh, the road of bones leading to the gulags. There's the testimony of no God and what that has led to in the last hundred years or more. See, look to history. I guess every one of us is tainted. Uh, but generally, you might, as you look in history, you look at Christians and you say, well, you know, they're, they're the social reformers, the general do-gooders and, and, and so on. But is that what a Christian really is? Now, here's an interesting one. What about if you look to the economy? I know there's some bankers here and so on. It's a strange place to look, but that's where China are looking right now. The Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, the top research institution um, of the People's Republic of China, they've been researching for a long time why the West is so prosperous and has been for many, many years. And this is what they concluded in one of their papers. It's interesting. One of the things we were asked to look at, look into was what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West over the world. We studied everything we could from the historical, the political, the economic, and the cultural perspective. And at first we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the, uh, the best political system. Next we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realised that the heart of your culture... Is your religion, Christianity. And they concluded that is why the West is so powerful. Oh, they may hate gospel teaching Christians, which is how we would describe ourselves here. They throw them in jail. I actually had coffee with a friend of mine who's been out in China for the last seven years and thrown in jail a number of times, uh, jail, jail in China, um, over, you know, a number of times over, the, over those years. But the Chinese envy, they envy the Christian work ethic, and the honesty that in Christian cultures, and I'm not saying that we are now, I think we're more a nominal Christian culture, 
but they envy that kind of honesty that's expected throughout the social structures of such a society. But again, is that what being a Christian really is? An economic kind of catalyst? Now, all of what I've mentioned is true, and you can look at it uh, in papers and so on, but, but none of what I have said describes the heart of Christianity. And think for a moment, if you can, what is it for you? What, what do you think is at the heart of Christianity, of these people that we've just baptised? What's at their core? What's the main thing that they're about? Well, it's this. These words that you have written down here on your sheets, in Galatians 3, verse 26... Through to verse 29. Um, we've been looking at this small little letter written to a, a bunch of churches in an area called Galatia, now southwest Turkey. And it was written by Paul the Apostle. And Paul has been writing to warn the Christians of Galatia, that area, to not add to any of the primary reasons that, in that someone is identified as a Christian. The churches have been tempted to think that a Christian was. A do-gooder, one of those things that we mentioned, a law-keeper, if you, if you like to put it in language here, a religious fanatic, if you like. And Paul says again and again and again, and he really likes repeating himself. He usually says things twice in the positive and once in the negative, and then he says it again and again, just so you make sure you get it, okay? But what does he keep saying? Exactly what he says at the beginning of these verses. Look down, have a look at it, verse 26. This is what he keeps saying. So in Christ Jesus, you're children of God. Through faith. See, Christians are first and foremost. Uh, uh, they're Christians because of a relationship. And not just an understanding. It's not just in our heads. But a relationship with Christ. We see that right at the beginning. That in Christ. How does that relationship come about though? You'll see it at the end of that verse. Uh, do we have to do loads of good things? Uh, do, do you have to help 10 old ladies across the road? Do you have to make sure that you get involved in, in kind of local politics? Or, as is popular around here, you get involved with the local school work, you know, uh, helping out with the, Christ, the Christmas fairs and so on. Is that how you do it? Lots of good stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But is that how you become a Christian? By doing lots of good things? Well, Paul says lots of times, no, 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 no. Let me take you back, if I can, to the heart of this letter. Chapter 2, verse 16, it says this. If like, this is the heart of being a Christian. He says, know that a person is not justified. That is, made right. That's what that word justified means. It's not made right with God. By works of the law, he says. By doing stuff. We're never going to be good enough, are we? We, we even let our own selves down, our own standards. That's why God has given me a snooze button. And you too, I'm sure. But how are we going to be right before God? What is a Christian? What is right at the heart of the Christian faith? Chapter 2, verse 16 says, A person is not justified by works of the law, doing stuff, but by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Chinese were wrong in their little summation there. That Christianity is, is not fundamentally a religion. That's how they categorized it. Because a religion is a man-made thing. Therefore, in our arrogance, if, if we're part of a religion, we think oh, we can contribute something to whatever God has done to make sure that we're right with him. A bit of God's stuff and a bit of me, and look what I've done, and that's fine. That's a religion. But Christianity is God-given, and it's fundamentally a faith 
given to each of the Christians here. That is the Christian faith. It's a faith in a complete and a finished work of Jesus. Of when he lived a perfect life, which we're going to celebrate soon at Christmas, and then die a death on a cross, an undeserved death. And when he dies, he says, this life, this perfect life, that's never done anything wrong, never thought anything wrong, that can be yours. Because justification is a legal word, and it's simply saying it can be counted legally as yours. We're going to see what that looks like just in a moment, more practically if you like. And how do we get that? Through faith. You just, Jesus is saying you just need to trust, believe, faith. They're all the same word uh, within the Greek, which is the, the language of the New Testament. That's how you're justified, made right with God, acceptable for God, to be with God for eternity. A Christian is a person of faith. Not kind of blind faith, and that's the criticism sometimes, isn't it? I thought Tim was really helpful in that. It's not a blind faith. He investigated hard, and the evidence is there. It's a rational faith. There's been lots on TV recently about C.S. Lewis, um, who's a man who many of you will know from the Narnia stories. He wrote a great book on this subject called Mere Christianity. It's been the best-selling Christian book for the last 50 years. Buy it. And he deals with how, as a rational thinker, as an atheist, he began to investigate the evidence. Have a look at it. And so we see, as a result of putting our faith in Jesus, the Christian, have a look at some of the phrases in the text here today. It says, they're in Christ, the first verse. Uh, Clothed with Christ, verse 27. And then last verse, it says, we belong to Christ. And each of those phrases dotted in around our passage today, they point to a truth which Paul says again and again through his letters, there's a unity, there's a union going on with the person of faith and Jesus. They're bound together. Verse 27 speaks of that union in terms of baptism. Look at it there if you can. It's quite handy for us today, isn't it? Because we've been looking at, we've seen baptisms there. Look at it. For all of you who were baptised into Christ, what's happened? You've clothed yourself with him. He said, you clothed yourself with Christ. You see, the picture, the sign of baptism is a simple picture of what faith in Christ and union with Christ has done. So as we lower James, Susie, um, and Tim into the water, what is happening? We're saying we're symbolizing a death to an old way of life. And that is simply a death to putting my faith in me. Trusting me throughout my life. I can do fine, thank you very much. I earn a good amount. I dress like this and I've got all these lovely family and friends. Putting your faith in me. You're saying it's a death that way. And as you raise up, you're saying, now I'm trusting Jesus. But it's not only with my life. It's with my death as well. I'm trusting Jesus with my death. Faith secures our union with Christ, verse 26. And, but baptism, outwardly, very visibly, doesn't it, signifies that union. And baptism is symbolic of our union with Christ, but also Paul uses that picture, doesn't he, of being clothed with Christ. Now what's clothing? Clothing is, in a sense, a uniform, isn't it? Oh, we like to think ourselves as individual, and oh, yeah, I don't look like anyone else, look how I dress, I'm, I'm, you know, I do as I wish, and so on. 
But our clothing generally identifies us with different groups, doesn't it? Maybe of the same sex. So ladies, wear, you, you, know, you wear particular things that men, gentlemen, generally don't wear and so on. You know, it may even identify us with a particular social class or even a particular nationality. Yeah, around here, you know, ladies, when they... Um, I do the school run every day and uh, it's interesting. As soon as a drop of rain comes out, the barber jackets come on and the hunter wellies come out. I mean, there's, there's about this much water on the pavement, but yet still everyone has to wear their hunter wellies. If you don't know what they are, ask. It's ridiculous. Therefore, you know, to say that Christ is a new clothing, which is the image here. I was just checking. You're not wearing hunter wellies. That's okay. Fine. Uh, <coughs> I thought I was in real trouble then. There we go. <coughs> To say that Christ is our clothing, you're, saying, you're identifying yourself with him. That is, the, these three guys who are baptised, they're saying, my ultimate identity is with Jesus. It's not that I'm British, it's not that I've been to that particular school or that university, or wherever it may be. The primary identity is with Christ. And uh, being clothing, it also implies a clo- uh, closeness. That's, that's, that's what clothing is. It's probably the closest thing to our bodies, isn't it? And like a piece of clothing is close to us, Christ is even closer. And he knows our every thought, even the ones right now. But most importantly, this little metaphor of clothed with Christ is, is really critical to understanding the gospel, the good news of fa- that faith that they, these guys, through faith, have put their trust in. You see, being clothed with Christ means that we're clothed in his life. Like a piece of clothing covers our nakedness, Christ covers our shame. The one with faith is covered. And for all that stuff which you dare not tell others, that only you know in your life, that stuff is covered in, by Christ in his perfect life. So when God looks at that, that individual and that Christian, at the one with faith, at that inevitable moment, moment at the end of your life when you meet him face to face, all he will see is Christ's perfect life. He covers us. We're clothed in him. So verse 26 begins, so in Christ Jesus, there's a transfer there, there's a change there, isn't it? He's saying, now as a Christian, we're quite different. We were, we were at one time our own God, if you like, trying to earn our way to heaven, trying to do things as we wished and so on. And Tim mentioned a bit about that, trying to be good, if we can, as possibly can, to get to be with God. But now in Christ, by faith, we have this unbreakable union with Christ. We are in him, clothed in him, we belong to him. But what does that mean, practically? Very quickly, three things, just to uh, kind of map that out, if you like, for, what, for these guys today. Firstly, we are children of God. And notice the present tense there, it's a present continuous, you are a child of God. If you're a Christian. And it's not something you try to attain, that you kind of contribute to. Baptism symbolises that you're a child of God. You are, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And in the original translation, it says, it's not we are actually children of God, it's rather we are sons of God. There's a particular use of sons there. Now, don't try and get all politically correct, and and, I'm worried about that at this moment, if you can. Because you miss the radical nature of sonship. 
if you take away to church, they've done it in the translation here, but it really is sons. Why? Well, because in ancient cultures, uh, the daughters would never receive the inheritance. And so as sons of God, in Christ, we become heirs. There's an inheritance at stake. Now, if you're thinking just for a moment, a little aside, if God only uses metaphors, for, you know, kind of masculine metaphors, he actually calls his church his bride. So we need to get over it, okay? You know, just kind of move on from that. It's okay. But now, through faith in Jesus, God is no longer depicted as he was previously in the previous verses as judge or as tutor in the previous verse in, in verse 25. Rather now, God is father. A heavenly father who loves each of us so much that he's willing to give his only son to live and then die but to receive us as sons. And he's a father with open arms depicted in Luke 15 if you want to look at it later. He's willing to receive all of those who want to turn to him that's that repent word and trust him. What's on offer? Forgiveness. Uh, that clothing in his perfect life. Acceptance. Life, as Tim mentioned, with meaning and with purpose, which leads to what? Dim, dismal, no, no great joy. Great contentment. Who do you live for? You know, who, to whom do you belong? If you, if you really dig down deep, you know, what, what meaning does your life have? You can have many, many kind of multiple meanings, and they're all good, but really deep. What is your anchor, some might say? What is your security, your home? You see, a Christian through faith in Jesus is a child of God, a son. And all of those questions are answered fully and completely in him. We are children of God. Secondly, we are all one in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 28. Just cast your eyes down there. Literally, I'm sorry about this literal meaning. It really means we are all one person in Christ Jesus, which sounds... Quite creepy to me, uh, but let's move on. It's, it's really a picture of close unity and belonging. And it means that anything else that normally distinguishes each of us and bet between others is rendered insignificant. And Paul uses here, if you notice in verse 28, there's three kind of hot topics of the time that divided communities. I don't think things have changed too much, have they? Have a look at them. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, that is ethnic, racial, Distinctions. There's neither slave nor free, kind of work hierarchies. And there's neither male nor female. You're, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now let me give you a tiny bit of history, if I can, of, of Bible history. In the Old Testament, God called and blessed his people from one nation, Israel, as we now know it. Through a promise made to Abraham back in Genesis. But when Christ came, when Jesus Christ came... All families on the earth could know that promise of blessing and being saved for eternity. That's a big picture. You see, Jesus did not die on a cross and come at Christmas just for the Western world and Israel, a bit Palestine and so on. No, his blessing of eternal life is open to anyone with faith. And the point being of this, this little verse here is that we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all equal. We're equal in our need for salvation in Jesus Christ, and we're equal in our inability to earn that salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And knowing this is such a leveler. And that leveling, that equality is lived out in the Bible word, it's fellowship, but it's a kind of a oneness. Christians are all one in Christ Jesus. Secondly, look at the issue that we've looked at, the kind of national issue. Look at the distinction of rank. There's neither slave nor free. Now, thankfully, Christians have worked very, very hard over many years to abolish slavery in this country. But every society, and you know it, has their, their kind of class systems, a hierarchy kind of system, don't we? Even if we don't like to admit it or not. And the, local, the government now, they know, so there's no class, but you know it's true. Even in Earlsfield and Southfield, where many of you live, there's a kind of a ranking system, isn't there? If you live in one particular street, oh, that's a nice street, wish we could live on there. You know, you go to particular places, you go to particular coffee shops and so on. You shop at different shops to the other people who live on that kind of street over there. You know you do it, we just don't like to talk about it. It even came down to the other day, when I was listening to a bunch of ladies outside this school, and they said, do you see that one there? She doesn't push the kind of push chair that we do. It was, it was really quite shocking. But that's the way that some people are. Circumstances of wealth and privilege and education have always divided. But Paul is saying here, in Christ, snobbery, class distinction, no. No longer. Look at the third distinction. There's no sexual uh, gender distinction there. Neither male nor female. Uh, given woman, uh, women at this uh, stage couldn't vote or give give any kind of testimony in a court of law, and they were simply despised in many cultures. Do you hear how revolutionary this kind of language was? And how Christians have changed the culture and the world for the rights and the privileges and the equality of women. And that is good. And Paul is saying, for, for, for the Christian, there is utter equality here. Uh, so, are Christians oblivious to racial differences, to hierarchy of differences, and to the differences of sex, uh, sex of a person? No, of course not. But rather than differences being judged, they're appreciated. So Christians are not to treat men as, as, as though they're women, and, and vice versa. Well, when Paul says these distinctions have been abolished, he's not saying they don't exist, he's saying they don't matter anymore. They no, they no longer create a barrier to fellowship, to oneness. Christians recognize themselves as equals before God. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not easy that, to say that at times. Because we struggle just like everyone else. But we try not to despise nor patronize. We are one in Christ Jesus. And, and there are small prejudices, I'm sure, in each of us here. If we're honest... In all of our hearts, think how you view the cleaner at work. Or maybe the person who collects your, your rubbish from outside your house once a week. Or even the traffic warden. How do you view them? We probably wouldn't say anything bad about them, would we? Not to their face, at least. But would you invite them to your dinner party? I guess that's the litmus test, isn't it? But Christians have this unity. They struggle for this unity. And that is unique throughout the world. I've had the privilege of travelling, not masses around the world but to a number of places to meet Christians to teach the Bible and it is extraordinary that despite huge differences economically educationally and so on we share not only our humanity which many of you will know that it's a beautiful thing isn't it to share your humanity with someone but there is an ultimate equality 
when a Christian meets a Christian from a different culture, a different background, and a different everything, there is an ultimate equality and appreciation that you will not experience anywhere else. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what a Christian is. Lastly, very briefly, we are heirs according to the promise. See, uh, look at verse 29, last verse. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, if you belong to Christ, if you are a Christian, you've kind of placed yourself, you have been placed in in a line, a faithful family line from Abraham. And you kind of take your place in a historic succession of faith Uh, within the unfolding promises of God in time. As a result, we become heirs of this promise. That promise given over 4,000 years ago in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham, a promise for all with faith in God, who would put their faith in God. And what is the promise? It's a promise to be God's people in God's eternal kingdom, his place, and to enjoy his favour or blessing. For eternity. And Christians through faith are children of God. They enjoy that oneness and equality with each other. And they are heirs of this blessing. That begins now. Gives purpose for life. But goes on forever. And many of you guys as you look at. You are enormously blessed. That is you you get great jobs. You get lovely cars, houses, everything. You go on lovely holidays. And yet that blessing pales into insignificance when you know the blessing of God that lasts for eternity. And so you've got to ask, who are you? You What do you live for? What's anger, home, secure, all those kind of questions. See, Christians find through faith in Jesus Christ, they find themselves, I guess, as they were intended to be. We find ourselves, we find our place in eternity as the children of God. That's our first point. We find our place with one another. That is, we're one in Christ Jesus. And we find our place in history. We are heirs of a promise that reaches back 4,000 years, but it reaches forward infinitely. See, that is the primary identity of a Christian. That is what a Christian is. Tim, Susie, and James, that is who they are. They are children of God. Look at the points. They are one in Christ Jesus. And they are heirs according to a promise. I guess I've got to ask at the end, what about you? What about you? Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you very much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so simple that through faith in him, in his life and his death, we can be called your children. Uh, That we can share a oneness which is utterly unique in this world and we can be heirs. Heirs of an eternal kingdom. To know your blessing forever. Lord, there's nothing better. There's nothing greater. And we thank you that Tim and James and Susie have been able to publicly demonstrate their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who brings all of those things today. Amen. We're going to sing our our final song as we close um, 
uh, our service today. Um, it's a, a hymn actually chosen by a couple of the guys who are getting baptised. Because it, it's, it's a modern hymn, but it, it's a hymn that expresses their faith. That it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. Not by doing stuff, but in his finished and final work that our hope is found. Let's stand, let's sing together, in Christ alone. Oh. 